Good morning. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Uh, We are glad that you're here with us. I'm going to add my welcome to David's. Um, This morning we're continuing our series uh, called Engaging a Broken World, and we're going to be, we've been looking at different encounters that Jesus has had throughout the Gospels and how those encounters with different people shape our engagement with the world around us. Uh, Last week we studied the first two parables in Luke 15, uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin, and today we're going to be looking at the rest of Luke 15 um, and probably one of the most well-known stories told by Jesus, uh, verses 11 to 32, uh, the parable of the lost sons, or more popularly known as the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, uh, remember at the beginning, verse 1, Jesus is surrounded by sinners and tax collectors, um, and he's surrounded by the religious leaders of the day. And the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of welcoming sinners, of eating with them, of showing this sign of intimacy, of acceptance, of great affection. And Jesus responds to this situation by telling the people gathered around him these three parables about lostness and about the kingdom of God. In the first two parables that we looked at last week, we saw the reason why Jesus and we are called to be celebrating. We're called to bring the reality of heaven to earth to celebrate when the lost are found. But we also see Jesus' gracious commitment to chasing after the lost in those parables. And in this last parable that we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, while it doesn't do less than that, it goes much deeper uh, than the first two parables. Jesus shatters our categories of what lostness is and shatters our categories about how gracious he is to us. He's throwing a huge party in honor of the lost. That party is going on right now. Does that party excite you this morning? Do you want to join into it? Does it make you want to bring other people into it? Let's turn to our text this morning, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. I'll read all of it. Hear the word of our God. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never disobeying your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Please pray with me. Father, we are shocked by your grace this morning, uh, your mercy and your pursuit of your people, your love for lost people is astounding to us. Uh, we thank you for your word, for your son, for his work for us. We ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would teach us this morning by your word, that you would make us attentive to your love, and that we would be transformed by meeting with you and your people. We pray that your word would be made clear this morning, that you would help us to see you and know you and love you in response. It's in Christ's name we come. Amen. I don't know if you've been to a bookstore recently. There's like one in the woodlands. Uh, But if you've been to a bookstore or to Target recently, the end caps in the aisles are totally filled with self-help books. Uh, Some of the titles I can't repeat this morning, they're pretty funny and catchy and part of why they're in the top sellers. But you see titles like How to Be a Boss, and that's B-A-W-S-E. I don't know what that means. But How to Be a Boss, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, Outer Order, Inner Calm, Girl, Wash Your Face, Girl, Stop Apologizing, and How Not to Die. That's my favorite one. Um, This at one time just small genre has become a $10 billion a year industry. These self-help books are so prevalent that the New York Times bestseller list uh, has created its own category for them. So they're not even lumped in with the rest of the books. They have their own category. Well, why is this industry so popular? These books promise to fix and to heal your brokenness. They promise life, and they promise a way to help you find life and rescue yourself. But what the popularity and the prevalence of this industry really reveal to us is that we all, deep down, know that we're lost. We're deep down, we deep down know that we're searching for something, and we're desperate for guidance. We're desperate for life. We're desperate for hope and for rescue because we know we're not the way that we're supposed to be. Being lost for us isn't something that's rare at all. We all feel it. We all know it. And that really brings us to this, our passage this morning. Jesus wants us to see that apart from him, we're all lost. We all need to be rescued. We all need his grace. So Jesus tells these parables about being lost this one in particular this morning, about being alienated from God, about being alienated from his people. And he demonstrates for us that there are actually two ways to be lost. 
It's not just the obvious younger brother who's lost. The elder brother is just as lost. He's just as distant from the father's heart as the younger brother is. So this morning, we're just going to briefly look at the younger brother. We're going to look at the elder brother. And we're going to see how the father deals with each of them and what we learn from and about Jesus in this story. So first, let's just look at the younger brother. Jesus begins the parable by saying, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one went up to his father said, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between his sons. Now in that culture, the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the estate and the younger son would have gotten one-third of the estate, but only after the father died. That's how inheritances work. So when the younger son demands his share of the estate now, he's basically looking at his, his dad in the eye and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't really want you. I just want your stuff. That's all that really matters to me. And what's shocking is that the father gives it to him. The original hearers are standing around hearing, and they're expecting the father to disown the boy right there on the spot, driving him away with physical, with verbal blows, starting the ceremony to finally cut him off completely from the family. But he doesn't. And then in verse 13... The son sets off for a distant country. He has to go where nobody knows him because he's dishonored his family. He's humiliated and and dishonored his whole family and community. And so in that country, he goes through all of his money fairly quickly. He goes through it on wild living, the text tells us. He basically goes out and he parties until the money runs out. And when the money runs out, he's left all alone. And then a famine hits the country. So he hires himself out to go feed pigs. And again, remember, this is a Jewish audience, so everyone in this story is horrified by this man's new job. This is the most disgraceful, unimaginable job because pigs are unclean to him and he's just surrounded by them. And then we find in verse 16 his status. He's so hungry, he's so broken at this point that he longs to eat what the pigs are eating. So we have this younger brother who says, Father, I wish you were dead. I can't wait any longer for you to die. I want to go off, and I want to live how I want to live. He's made himself an outcast to his family, to his community. And the way that he's finding his significance, his value, his worth, his happiness, it's by running off and living how he wants to live. He's saying, I decide what's right and what's wrong. It's very easy for us to see younger brother lostness, um, we usually think of it as someone with, with you know, little to no regard for authority, someone who thinks they know what's best, uh, someone who searches for happiness in meaning, in life, in self-discovery, in wild living, which we typically categorize as sex and drugs and drinking and a life of promiscuity and partying. And what we need to remember is these are the people, the younger brothers, that are flocking to hear Jesus. Remember in verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners are gathered around Jesus. So Jesus is drawing them in. And this first type of lostness, this obvious type of lostness, is the younger brother. And we have to stop and ask ourselves at this point, are we, are you and I ever like this? Do we ever get tired of following the rules because we're not getting what we want? 
We're not getting what we think we deserve, so we cut ourselves off and we pursue life and happiness in any and everything, everything that we think is going to make us happy. We just sang it about it in just a few seconds ago. We're feeding on the filth around us. You know, is that what we do when we get tired of following the rules? But look at, at what happens. Verse 17. He came to his senses. That's repentance right there. He says, look, I've messed up. I'm starving to death here, and my father's hired men have food to spare. Maybe, maybe I'll go back and I'll apologize to him. Maybe he'll allow me to work on his estate. Maybe he'll let me live in the village and pay him back for all that I've lost him. Verse 18 shows us he understands that he sinned against God and his father, and because of that, he's not worthy to be called his son. And he's right. He's shamed. He's dishonored his family and his community and his God. But he doesn't know what else to do, and so he goes home. And this is the best part of the whole story. Verse 20 says, While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This verse gives us an amazing insight into the type of God that we have, the type of God that the Bible tells us exists. While he was still a, young, a long way off, it says, his father saw him. This means that the father was out looking for him. He's not sitting at home, just glancing occasionally out the window, and when he sees him, you know, he doesn't tap his foot with his arms crossed saying, oh, this better be good. He better grovel and he better pay me back. I can't believe this son would show his face here again. That's not how this father is at all. He's filled with compassion for his lost son. So he hikes up his skirts, revealing his legs, which we'll get to in a second, and he runs to meet his son. Now, distinguished men in that culture didn't run and they didn't show their legs. So this is scandalous, and this is shameful. He's surrounded by people. This isn't like a field um, that this guy lives on like a farm. This is, these are tiny kind of row houses. So this is a public display for everyone. But that's the greatest thing about this father. He doesn't care about what other people think. He doesn't care about the social norms. He's willing to be publicly humiliated to welcome his son home. And he sees his son and he takes off for him. It says he literally fell on his neck. He's hugging and kissing him. And then the son begins the speech that I'm sure he's rehearsed it a hundred times on the way home. You know, verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him. He doesn't even let him finish. Instead of a public rebuke, or words of criticism and condemnation, which everyone thought he was going to bring, this father offers words of grace and words of restoration. He shouts to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. He clothes his nakedness. Put a ring on his finger. He restores him immediately as a son with full rights, again, and full status. And then he put, says, Put sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a party. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and he is found. The son wants to pay his father back. He doesn't think he can be a son anymore. He wants to be a hired man. And how does the father respond? 
in one fell swoop, he restores him completely as a son. He doesn't make him repay. He doesn't make him grovel. He doesn't make him recount a laundry list of all the ways that he's wronged him and his family and his community. At the first sign, the first sign of repentance, the father restores him completely. And that's exactly what our God does with us. When we see our brokenness, when we see our rebellious hearts, when we see the fact that we just want the Father's stuff and not the Father at all, when we see the ways that we've rejected God and we've tried to make it on our own and we finally come to our senses and we come home and we say, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your child. Immediately, God makes us his own child and he throws a party. We don't have to pay him back. We don't have to earn our place. We don't have to work to maintain or, or keep his forgiveness and love. He clothes us immediately with Jesus' righteousness. He covers our nakedness and shame. He showers us with his love and grace. He makes us his. And he sacrifices his own dignity to bring us in. What we see here in Jesus is that Jesus is glad to suffer for us. He's glad to be humiliated and to die on our behalf so that he can celebrate with you, so that he can celebrate over you. Why? Because you're worth it to him. You're enough, and he wants you, and so he goes after you. And then it shows us, this is what, what else is amazing here, it shows us that you can always come home to this father. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, Jesus stands ready to welcome you and to receive you and to make you his. This is absolutely shocking to the original hearers and to us this morning. But let's keep going. What about the, the elder brother? What about the other son? If you look at verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. The older son's being obedient. He's doing his job. And as he approached the house, he heard music, and he hears dancing in the distance, and he's confused. This isn't a typical Tuesday night for him, so he grabs one of the servants, and he goes, what's going on? And the servant replies in verse 27, your brother has come, and your father has him back safe and sound, and so he killed the fattened calf. We're having a party. And how does the son react? Is he happy? Is he filled with joy because his brother's home? No. Look at verse 28. It says he became angry and refused to go in. Now he is the one that's shaming and disgracing the father. He refuses to go inside to the party. So I want you to imagine you're throwing a party and your child is outside and refuses to come in. As the host of that party, it would be extremely embarrassing and very public if you had to go outside to plead with your child to come in. You can almost hear like the record scratch and everyone stops to watch. You know, what's this father going to do with this son now? And again, the father shocks everyone at the party. Instead of rebuking the older son for humiliating him, he goes out tenderly to him. He leaves the party and he goes to plead with his son to come in to celebrate. Again, he's willing to be humiliated for the sake of bringing his son in. And we see here why the older brother is angry. He reveals his hand in verses 29 and 30. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never, 
disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. You can just hear the hatred just dripping off of his lips. Why is he so angry? He's angry because he's more concerned about the father's stuff than he is about the father. He knows that the only way that this brother can be brought back in is at his expense. The, other, the younger brother spent all of his inheritance already, and this older brother doesn't approve of the use of his inheritance now. And so he shouts, look, look you, he's so disrespectful. All these years I've been slaving for you. And so this son, filled with self-righteousness, he says, I've been here the whole time. I haven't left you. I haven't humiliated you. I've only obeyed you. I've only honored you. And for what? This son of yours, he won't even call him his brother. I don't know if you noticed that. This son of yours comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. You throw this huge party with the whole village here and there's dancing and everyone is having a good time. He doesn't see his father as a loving father who's already given him his whole inheritance. And the father says tenderly to him, my son. He, again, he speaks words of grace and restoration. Not criticism and shame, but my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. When the father says that, he's being brutally honest. Again, we said it. Everything that's there is already the elder son's. The ring, the robe, the calf. All that's left is his. And yet the son sees his father as a slave master who hasn't given him the rewards that he deserves. What we see here is that we have one son who's distant from the father because he's not good. Because he's, in fact, he's, he's very bad. But the older brother is alienated from his father because of his goodness. It's not his sin that creates the barrier between him and his father. It's his pride and his moral record this is what's keeping him outside of the feast. We see here that the elder brother is just as lost as the younger brother. He's just as resentful. He's just as broken. He's just as much after the father's things as the younger brother. But he goes about it through control. Not by being bad, but by being very good. And so we need to hear this morning that careful obedience to God's law might be a strategy for rebelling against God. So... How can you tell if you have elder brother tendencies? Are you angry? Do you get mad when sinners are around you? Or when you see people seemingly flaunting their sin? Are you disgusted or creeped out by people who don't look or act or think the way that you think they should? Do you feel like your life should be a certain way at this point? You've done all the right things. You go to church, you pray, you read your Bible, you're generous with your money. You don't do anything that those people do. So God owes it to you to let things go the way that you think they should. The elder brother here thinks that he has leverage over his father. He says, look, I've done all this. I've never disobeyed you. You have to do what I want now. Tim Keller says that if you think that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, may be your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You 
are your Savior? Do we try to save ourselves by our goodness? Do we try to get God in our debt by following after him so that he will have to bless us? Or when things don't go the way that you think they should, or when someone who has no regard for God at all, when things are going their way, how do you react? If you're angry, you might have some elder brother tendencies. Another way to to think about this, another way to tell if you struggle with elder brother tendencies is this. The elder brother doesn't see the beauty of his father and his love. He only sees duty. When I was in high school, I took a creative writing class uh, my senior year because I needed an easy A to boost my GPA. Uh, That was the bottom line. I read and I wrote a lot of poetry that semester so I could get an A. And the reason was so I could get into a good college, so I could make a lot of money. That was my heart. That was my, my motivation. Poetry was just a duty. But after I got finished with the class, I began to read and to write more poetry because I enjoyed it, because it became beautiful to me. It was just an end in itself. I didn't do it to gain anything. I didn't, I mean, clearly I went into poetry, right? Um, I didn't do it to, to get you to think that I'm cultured. I did it just because I enjoyed it. Elder brothers see God as useful, as a means to get what they want. But they're not filled with his beauty. When you see the grace and the love and the tenacious commitment of Jesus in chasing after you and going to the cross for you and becoming the ultimate outsider so that you could be on the inside of his celebration, you actually want to begin to follow and obey God, not to get stuff from him, but just to have him just to honor and serve him because he's beautiful to you. So Jesus, in this parable here, he doesn't divide the world into good guys and to bad guys, into bad guys or lost guys. He shows us that we are all lost, that we all seek to use God to get what we want. Some of us do it by being very good, and others of us do it by being bad. But Jesus is saying here that it's actually more dangerous to be an elder brother, because if you're an elder brother, you don't know that you're lost. But the gospel shows us something different altogether. It says, everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved, and we're called to recognize that and let Jesus change us. Because if we recognize that truth, if you get that Jesus became the ultimate Jesus, who was the ultimate insider, became an outsider. He was put outside of the Trinity, that the one who, who had perfect relationship with God from all eternity became a man and was stripped bare on the cross and was beaten and humiliated and murdered so that you could be put on the inside of the world's greatest party. How can you look down on other people because they're broken? If we understand that, we are going to be a changed community that's filled with grace and with hope and with forgiveness and love. When we see other people trapped in sin, we can't say, you deserve that. You're getting what's coming to you. Because don't you remember who you are? You are a broken sinner that Jesus had to die for to make his. So if we get that beauty, if we get that truth, You can't look down on sinners for being lost. You're actually going to hurt for them. You're going to long for them to turn to Jesus in repentance. You're you're not going to see them in their sin, and you're not going to gloat 
You're not going to look at them in their pain and rejoice. You're not going to, to wag your accusing finger. You're not going to criticize them mercilessly. You're not going to turn their back on them, whoever they are, whether it's a friend, a family member, a child, a coworker, or a neighbor, or the person who cuts your hair. You're going to mercifully, because of the beauty and goodness of the gospel, you're going to mercifully and prayerfully long for repentance. And you will gladly and willingly be there to welcome them and restore them at the first sign of repentance. And even more than that, you'll mirror Jesus and you'll chase after them in love, willing to be shamed, willing to be humiliated so that they might come in repentance, that they might follow after Jesus. But when we see people who are self-righteous and don't think that they need the gospel of grace and forgiveness, who are angry, who feel like they're slaving for God, we won't be angry with them either. We won't be aggressive with them either. We won't be quick to write them off. That's my tendency. I want to judge the judgmental people and be harsh with those who are harsh and condescending and rude. But what we see here is that Jesus isn't that way at all. In the story, he pleads with them, my child, he says. He loves them too. And he longs for them to come into the celebration as well. He longs for them to see their lostness, to be overwhelmed by his beauty and grace, and to come in and join the party. So this morning, the party has started. Jesus has come, and he's suffered, and he's died, and he's risen again, and he comes to us. He chases after us, and he pleads with us, come join my celebration. I don't know if you noticed this, but no one goes out searching for the younger brother except for the father in the story. If you remember the, the lost sheep and the lost coin, someone goes after it, and so you're thinking, who's going after the younger brother in this story? Who should have gone looking? The person who should have gone looking was the elder brother. This younger brother in this story gets a Pharisee for an older brother, but you and I don't. You and I get the true elder brother. You and I get Jesus who chases us down, who pursues us, who pursues us to death, even in the midst of our deepest rebellion. Why? Because he delights in bringing the lost home. He delights in celebrating when the lost are found. So this morning, are we celebrating when the lost are found? Are we able to admit that we ourselves are lost apart from him? And in doing so, are we allowing Jesus and his angels to celebrate over us? The party's going on. The host, Jesus, is better at grace than we are at sinning. So the invitation to you is open. Do you want to come in? Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your pursuit of us for your love for us, for coming in and chasing after us, for willing to be humiliated and for willing to suffer so that we could be brought in. We are astounded by your goodness and mercy. We ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to turn to you, that whether in our rebellion through running from you or our rebellion and drawing near to you, to get something from you. We ask that you would break us this morning, that you would feed us at your table. It's in Christ's name we come. Amen.